to know how to create like the grades. Let's break it down. Welcome to Create Like the Greats, a podcast where we take you into the inner workings of how some of the greatest creators of all time did or do what they do. We study the strategies and the techniques that some of the greatest creators are taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm Ross Simmons, your host, and I'm here to help you in your pursuit to create something great. If you're new to this show, then welcome. Thank you for joining us today. And for those of you who have listened to numerous episodes, thank you for joining again. Now, I want to ask you a quick question. Have you ever met someone who is always creating something great? I mean, really creating, whether it be a photographer, a dancer, a videographer, a musician, sociologist, entrepreneur, stylist, poet, etc. I mean, they're just constantly able to create something out of nothing. Or have you watched in awe as someone creates something incredible over and over again with, in many ways, ease? You've sat and watched them create a piece of art at a high level, not just once, but maybe over and over again. Maybe you follow them on Instagram, you follow them on social, and you constantly see them put up this work that is great. Or maybe this is you. Maybe you're someone who can create something out of nothing. Maybe you're the person who can look at a block of ice and say, I can turn this into a sculpture, or I can look at a piece of paper and turn that paper into a masterpiece. These individuals are in our lives, they're in our worlds, they're the people that we typically will call a hyper-creative. And a hyper-creative is oftentimes someone who is always able to create at a high level. Their existence is really built and maintained through creating things. They're likely not able to have a single day where they end it feeling good if they don't create something. And on today's show, today's episode, I'm excited to talk about and talk with someone who does that at a high level. This is Create Like the Greats. So we will be diving into her world, her work, but most importantly, her creative thinking process. Today's guest is Tamra Dwartz, or should I say, Maestra Tamra Dwartz. Tamra is a conductor who has conducted the Paris Mozart Orchestra, Boston Pops, Dallas Opera Orchestra, Cabrillo Festival Orchestra, and Amarillo Symphony. And in the 2022 to 2023 season, she will make her debut with the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra, Mankato Symphony, and the Georgia Philharmonic. Tamara set with the WMHT Public Media, a nonprofit multi-channel public communications organization, and discussed some of her story as well as the role of the conductor. You know, when I've I've watched video clips of you conducting orchestral music for, especially for a live audience and for recordings, and you are so embodied. I mean, every single inch of your body just expresses every nuance and every tone and every feeling that's coming through in the music. And I'm just curious, Tamara, you know, why are gestures and the movement of the body so important when you're conducting orchestral music for a live audience? Well, it's so important because, um, well, first of all, the, 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 the way that it's the f physical connecting with the emotional is, I think, what drew me to conducting in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I really love the idea of um, connecting those two things. Um, you know, as a conductor, there's different lines, different 
parts happening at the same time. You know, you have a score and there's the melody and then you have a harmony and you have a, maybe a rhythmic part and maybe another part. And those are all kind of pieces of the puzzle and each musician, they um, only really have, see their part of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And the conductor's job is to kind of physically show how those all fit together. Um, so, so you're taking different threads in a sort of warp and weft, right? If you had like a loom yeah. and you're weaving them together, you're yeah. helping weaving them together. You've got all the elements and then you put them together into like a beautiful tapestry. <laughs> sure, exactly. And I, I think, you know, the musicians, they could all play their parts and they would all go together without me being, without a conductor needing to be there. But the role of the conductor is to really, um, provide a vision and a unification. It's almost kind of like a coach of like a football team. You know, the coach isn't necessarily like a better quarterback or um, a linebacker than the players themselves, but they can see the whole picture and how things fit together in a way that the perspective of the individual players can't. Folks, I am excited to introduce you to Tamra Dwartz. Tamra, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ross. It's great to be here. So when you get a brand new piece of music and it's in front of the orchestra, what are the steps that you take to begin to work on that piece prior to, during, and then after the rehearsals? Most of the work happens before the rehearsals. So I get a brand new score I've never studied before. And basically I'm acting as a detective. I'm trying to take from this two dimensional piece of paper, the music with the ink on it. And I'm trying to reach through it and understand what the composer's intention was. And they're trying to share their emotions, their inner world. Most of the time those composers have been dead for quite a while. So I have to try to use the clues that are in the ink to decipher kind of a more dimensional, complex sound world. Hmm, that's fascinating. So when you think of a sound world, could you describe to me like what you're envisioning and the way that you approach even communicating that to the musicians around like we're crafting a sound world? What does that mean to you? A lot of that is actually already just built into the language of the composer. So for instance, if, if you read a book by a certain author versus another author, they're just going to have a different tone to them, regardless of who is reading the book. That's kind of built into the, to the score. So I'm just trying to really find out what in the language of the composer I need to really clarify. And I, I explain that to the musicians. So for instance, Rachmaninoff, he has these lines over some of the notes, and that means to lean on those notes. And sometimes the conductor doesn't clarify that for the musicians and the musicians don't really do that. But when you when you really ask for that, the music and the language just kind of comes alive and it's just much more clear in its communication. That's cool. So when you're like going through this like Sherlock Holmes detective mode to find these clues, like what muscle are you using? Like how are you getting to those clues? Like how do you do it? This is why I love conducting so much because it really involves your brain, your heart and your soul at every step of the way. In the very beginning, I do have to say it's very technical. I'm, I'm looking on the page and I'm just, I write down measure one or bar one, this is what's happening. I see this, I notice this, I notice this, I notice this. And then I ask myself, well, I wonder why the composer chose to do that versus that. And oftentimes those questions and going through it like technically like that will then lead to the next step, which is, oh, I see these patterns and I think they're trying to get across this. And then I experiment by like singing different ways it could go. You know, that involves more of my heart and my musicianship and my creativity. Um, so it's really a way of putting all that stuff together. That's amazing. So 
when you're going through that process and that experience, could you give me a bit of a rundown on like what your environment's like? Like when you are going through this process to really understand it, where are you? Are you doing this at home? Are you doing this at the facilities? Like give me a bit of a rundown on like where you are doing this type of work. Sure. The great thing about being a freelance conductor is that I can study in my pajamas at home (laughs) with my my dog. So I just use the kitchen table, which is actually where I'm at right now. And I like to be in a space where there's a lot of windows and light. I don't like to be in an office. I just, it cramps my style. So um, yeah. So just, yeah, usually just am as comfortable as possible. And I have coffee and I might have the score. I'll definitely have the score, but I also might have like a book of maybe Dvorak's letters that he wrote that are translated to English so I can get a sense of, you know, the personality and I'll read a lot about the composer's background. And like, for instance, Dvorak again, his first name is Antonin. He was from Bohemia, modern day Czechoslovakia. But when he was a composer, it was very uh, Austro-Germanic and they tried to change his name on his scores to Anton, the, you know, the German version of Antonin, um, and he demanded it be Antonin. So he was very much like a nationalist of Bohemia. And just knowing that, and then you're seeing the folk songs in the music, how much he loved his country and how much he was writing with love for his homeland. It makes somebody who, you know, has not been alive for a long time, it makes them more relatable and it makes you be able to feel closer to that person and therefore more authentically kind of share what you've learned about it with the musicians. And I think it really helps them play the music better too. Fascinating. Like, have you ever thought about that? I clearly from your answer, you have, but like you're bringing a window into the past, into the present through music. And in many ways, you're bringing life to those who are no longer with us. Like, how do you try to consistently apply your own perspective and skills to this, the modern musician's skills to this, but still stay true to the essence of like the original art? How do you try to balance that? That's a beautiful question. Essentially, no two human beings are exactly the same, but we all, you know, we all want to relate and feel connected to each other. But at the same time, you know, we could all see the same thing, but then respond to it differently because of our unique pasts. So essentially, I can't read the mind of Dvorak. You know, I can try to learn as much about him and try to do him as much justice as I can. But then at some point, I have my own relationship to the music and to him. And every conductor, and that's the beautiful thing about it, they're going to have their own relationship. So, you know, there's not one way to play Dvorak. There's definitely wrong ways to do it. But that's the beauty of it. And I think nowadays, especially in classical music, um, and I'm sure other art forms, there's there's not just one way is the right way. There's so many different ways you can do it and approach it. It's not mutually exclusive. You can keep the essence of the composer and have your own relationship to it. Thank you for sharing that. So I want to shift a bit. You're working with musicians who for their entire lives were probably some of them considered like child protégés. And I imagine that they have some identity, some independence, some like concrete beliefs around like themselves. And then they're going into this type of environment. What are some of the strategies that you establish to kind of allow them to still have creative flow, but still reinforce that sense of like autonomy as an individual? As a conductor, I'm mostly working with orchestras, which are usually very large and a lot of people. And in an orchestra, you might have 40 to 50 string players. And within that, you might have 10 to 15 first violins. That means 10 to 15 people are playing the exact same part. And 
the problem that happens is when a young violinist, maybe they start when they're five, maybe their parents made them, maybe they wanted to, but the focus is oftentimes on solos. And to really achieve, you become a soloist, not a chamber musician, not an orchestra player, a soloist. And it's about playing the music perfectly. And rarely, um, in my experience, do teachers really talk about sharing with the audience and the impact on the audience. It's more about the perfection and doing it right. And so you'll have a violinist who maybe they have much more attention on the technical parts, less than the musical parts. That's sometimes true, sometimes not. But you, I mean, you could even have someone who actually makes it as a virtuoso and they're soloing with orchestras. And sometimes they're really great technically, but I wouldn't necessarily call them a good musician. But the thing that happens is the focus is on, you know, me, 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 me as a violinist. And then they become one of 10 to 15 and they're playing all the same part and they, and it's their identity. They put so much into it. A lot of people consider other jobs, but they feel like they can't really do that. So as a conductor, kind of knowing that dynamic, I want to try to help create an environment where the string players especially, because the winds and, and brass and percussion, it's usually one on a part. So there's autonomy already built into their situation. But for the strings, I want to create a space where they feel empowered. I do that through not talking that much. And, I, and when I do say something, make it really meaningful and make it really obviously make, the, make it sound better by eye contact. And I, I try to look into the back and the middle of the sections, not the front stands. The front stands have a little more autonomy built into because they're the leaders. So those two things can really help. And then just also, you know, during a break, just saying hi and like being a human being and say like, how's your family? How's your dog? You know, I think those things go a long way. And some orchestras have other things kind of built into the infrastructure. They have chamber music and family concerts where musicians can have a different kind of autonomy outside of performing in the full orchestra setting. And with your position as a conductor, like you're literally standing in front of the orchestra, that's like on its own, both a figurative and literal statement in many ways. Like perhaps you've worked with some of these musicians before when they were adolescents and then they've played with other orchestras, et cetera. And you're like conducting them and you're like in their presence. When you look at the difference between, let's say, a good musician and someone who is at the top of their game, virtuoso, so to speak, what do you see as like three key things that differentiate the best that you've come across? I would say they can technically do anything on the instrument. But then there's soloists today who, I mean, are making a bunch of money going all over the world who are technically proficient, but what they lack is they don't really have their own take, their own relationship, as I was talking about before. Or maybe they do, it's just not very deep. <laughs> so definitely you got to have the technical ability because you have to have that to be able to get the good musicianship out. Then you have to have the great musicianship. You have to have your own take. You have to be an artist. You have to someone who experiments with the different ways a line could sound. Also, just like I'm doing as a conductor, do research on the composer so it's an informed interpretation. And then three, I think it's just playing from your heart. And when a musician is, is really fair, they're sharing it with you. Now, they're not just playing it in their own little bubble. They're really trying to share their gift and what they have to say about the music with the audience. Um, there's a violinist I absolutely love because to me, he just checks all three of those boxes. Augustin Hadelish, he's great. But yeah, it's hard to find. The solo music can be much more technically demanding. So if in an orchestra setting, I'd prefer someone who's a little less technically proficient, but is open to musical ideas and will try things. That's, I would much prefer that actually. And how do you get that out of them? 
you can just ask for the kind of sound you just, there's a certain vocabulary to use where musicians know, okay, so I want a really warm sound. I really, I want a really deep sound. Can we play? And sometimes you can really specify, like, I'd like this string players to play flautando, which is they put their bow over the fingerboard and move it pretty fast so that it creates a certain kind of flute like sound. Um, so there's all different kinds of things you can do, but when it's, when the orchestra is really unified, and I think that's the key word, that's when it's compelling to the audience. So we've explored deeply one side of the puzzle with the musician side within the orchestra and they're, what they're doing to develop and the things that they need to care about, relic, technical, et cetera. But you also have a responsibility to be a great conductor and an excellent leader. So in your opinion, what separates a good conductor from an excellent conductor? And what are they doing on a regular basis to stay on top of uh, their game? So that goes back to maybe our first question of after all that study, I'm coming up with maybe three to five big concepts about this composer. Like for instance, like what I said about Rachmaninoff with the lines over the notes. And I'm finding these things that I think the composer has written into the score that do create the essence and I want to communicate those things. Even though I've gone through every measure and looked at every single note and I have a billion thoughts going in my head, the hard thing is actually not being too detailed with the orchestra, actually saying less, but saying things that are really important that they can transfer through the entire piece. Like when you see this, that means this and do that every time. When that clarity happens, I mean, it really makes for a, a more compelling performance. I can't say it enough, but it's rare, it's rare to find that in orchestras actually just to help clarify the differences. A bad conductor is someone who, you know, they do the timekeeping in the right places. You know, maybe they even keep time really well, but that's like not even important. <laughs> I mean, it, it, is, it is important. It is important, but it's just like the tip of the iceberg. And some conductors think that that's everything, <laughs> but it's not. In orchestra, um, often they do need help keeping the beat, which is true, but that's just like really the first step. So in a great conductor, they create a give and take with the orchestra. There's moments when they're giving a lot of energy and really showing how to it goes, but then there's also moments when they're moderating and just letting the orchestra take up the space and play. Um, that's really, really important. And then not just showing the beats, but showing how all the different parts of the orchestra are integrated. So you'd have the melody, a really long, beautiful line, then you might have like a rhythmic part under that, and you might have a harmony too. And somehow in the gesture, one physical movement, you're showing kind of how all of those three parts integrate and work together. Um, so you're not just conducting the melody, you're not just conducting the bass line, you're kind of conducting it all. And then sometimes though, even though you're conducting it all, you might want to bring out more of one of those elements. So you face that group, you make eye contact, you know where to give your attention that it's going to make it easier for all those other parts to come alive and, um, and play with more, with more ease. So for instance, sometimes the baseline drives the energy. And so I want to like turn to the baseline and be like, let's go, but I'm still showing how it's all integrated. Right. And you're, you're making those decisions live. So like, would you consider that part to be coming from the, the soul as you described it or from a technical lens? Like when you're making those moves. Both. Yeah. So that's in the score study. I'm seeing like, oh yeah, this is the baseline. It's drive. It's changing the harmony. And that's really what's causing the musical momentum to happen. And so if I energize that part, the rest of it will just follow suit. And so then in the moment though, in a performance, I'm, I'm, I'm showing that, but I'm also energized and showing them how to play it, how to play it. So not just, it's not just a when, it's a how. 
how are you picking that up in real time live? Is it just by being so in tune with the the room and how the, the music is coming at you? Like, how do you navigate that in real time? Like before that part comes up, just maybe two seconds before or three seconds, I'll look and make eye contact and try to give a really inspiring face and be like, hey, this is you guys, let's go. It's almost like a coach. I have no power. I mean, I'm not really making it, I'm not making any sound. So, but I'm trying to say, hey, this is your play. You know, right. this is your play now. Right. You guys drive, come on. And then that, ener- it ener- it's energizing. It's about sharing energy. And then, you know, I the facial expressions, I'm, I'm singing the music on the inside. So I'm almost, it's like I'm with them in our experience of it. And so then I'm just singing it really loud. And I'm at a point where the gestures kind of describe that. And I'm just a little bit ahead of them. So they can see exactly how to shape things. The emotional intelligence to do this must be like ridiculous. Oh, so like, yeah. <laughs> how do you work on that muscle even? Like emotional intelligence is one of those things that people would say is like impossible to teach. You have to have high emotional intelligence as a conductor. How do you strengthen that muscle? Like how have you strengthened it over the years? I feel like as a musician, I'm at, up here, but the emotional intelligence is like, I have a long way to go. Let's just say that, you know, so much of it is dealing with different people, right? Even in a professional orchestra, in a community orchestra, there's lots of personalities and people want to feel seen and they want to be heard. So somehow when you're up there as a conductor, you know, you're vulnerable. Everybody's looking at you, but musicians are vulnerable too. But when someone asks a pointed question or maybe says they could say something rude, you have to be able to not take that personally in the moment and be like, okay, that's them. And just be like, oh, thank you for that question. And let's talk after, or you just have to be able to be not defensive and not take it personally. And afterwards you can just, uh, you know, sometimes after rehearsal, I'll have just, I just need a beer. Um, <laughs> and then I go to bed um, and you just gotta kind of get on with it. Uh, you know, having a good group of, of, of conductor friends also, it, it's a very isolating job. So I think it's really important to have I have some friends who are very much wiser than me <laughs> and, um, you know, we'll talk through different situations and we'll be like, okay, well, maybe I could have handled it this way and next time I'll handle it this way. And you just have to be kind to yourself and, and you know, cause it's tough. It's really tough, but that's part of the reason I love it. Cause it's, it's always challenging. It's always going to be a different group of people um, as, as a freelance conductor, especially, but at the same time, I'm not stuck with any orchestra <laughs> for a long time. That's fair. Could you share one of the toughest scenarios or situations that you've been in? You'd be curious to get a sense of like, what is one of those tough scenarios you've gone through where like having conductors in your circle to talk through was beneficial? So I was working with a community orchestra over the summer And it was just like a one-off thing. It was one rehearsal and one concert. And basically the amount of music we had to go through was like equal to the rehearsal time. So essentially all we could do is like run through things. And I would give like two comments. We maybe go through a hard part again. And it was a community orchestra, right? So this is not professionals. So this is not an ideal situation. It was a horrible situation, but it wasn't my decision that it should be that be like that. I was just happy to, to, to be there. And one guy just blurts out, doesn't even raise his hand. That sounded like shit. Are we really not going to do that again? Like in front of the whole orchestra. And I was like in shock first of all. And then after that, I was just like, 
nope, we're moving on. And I just kept going. <laughs> that was a moment I think I handled it really well. I was just direct and kind, but like, nope, I'm not engaging with you. Uh, I wish I handled all situations that well. Uh, <laughs> but if someone someone seems unhappy, I'm like, oh crap, Like I, I messed up. That's my first instinct is I messed up. They're not happy. They're going to be mad at me. I really need to work on getting over that and just being like, but that comes with experience and just having that kind of inner confidence and also dealing with so many people doing that, that it's not a shock anymore. <laughs> Think about the first time you did this and where you are today. Would the old you have any idea of the success or even the skills and new lessons that they would learn over the course of their career? In my wildest dreams, I think. Um, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think as a super young conductor just starting, I had any idea how hard it is, not just musically, but interpersonally and all of the dynamics. At the same time, as I keep going and learning more about it, it's like a rabbit hole. It's like the more you know, the more you realize there is to learn. Well, sometimes I'm like, yeah, that's really exciting. You know, I'll always be growing. It'll never get boring. And sometimes I'm like, oh man, maybe I should have just you know picked an easier job where I can just <laughs> settle a little bit. But um, yeah, definitely. I think I'm, I learned so much, but I also think like, I also want to be a mom, you know, and I think I'm learning a lot about the world and people that I wouldn't have learned if I wasn't a conductor. And so that um, I think will help me as a mom too, though. That's awesome. Very cool. So there's a young conductor out there. They love everything that you've done and they want to, in 20, 15 years, be in your shoes. What advice do you give them today? I would say kindness goes a long way. And even when you're in school, in your undergrad, even in high school, you're making connections that, you know, those people might be, they'll be, be an arts administrator and they might ask you to conduct their orchestra. Really? People told me that all the time. And I was like, okay, whatever. But really that happens. So just being a good person, being a team player. Um, but then as a conductor, just being yourself, being authentic, it's really tempting to want to have a persona because we're all insecure. <laughs> um, but uh, just being authentic, being yourself, have, you know, like I was saying, have your own relationship with the music. Try to really push yourself to, to mess up, like to let yourself mess up because Dvorak 8, I'm conducting that right now for the first time. And I know that's the first time I'm doing it. I know that there's parts of it that aren't going to be what I'm going to do the next time. And I'm going to continue developing my relationship with that piece and with the, the music of that composer in general. So it's like, just trust in the process, let yourself grow and know that you're going to keep growing. So it doesn't all have to be perfect right now. How do you stay in a mindset of positivity amidst a failure or a struggle like this one? First time doing it. Everyone who's ever doing something for the first time is going to run into some hurdles and some moments where it's like, this is tough. What are, you, what are the processes that you take through to kind of break through that struggle for a moment? I, I think I just accept the struggle. <laughs> um, I think I just, I mean, I get really anxious. I get really afraid, especially yeah, but if, if it's like a first rehearsal, I haven't done the music before. Maybe it's an orchestra I haven't met before. I mean, it's like starting a new job every time. I mean, and I get so nervous. I mean, there's some days like I can't even get off the couch. Like I just have to stop and like watch TV and, and because I, I can't even be productive. I'm so nervous. And it's gotten to the point where I'm just like, Okay, that's, this is just the way it... And then it usually goes great. You know, I even heard that the, the Dalai Lama gets panic attacks. I mean, everybody has their own process and um, just accepting that that is what it is. 
I think that can be the most scary part. It's like when you try to fight it, it gets worse more times than not, right? Like you want to be able to just sit in it, experience it, understand how this is impacting you and how you're feeling it all. And then uh, go from there. Do the musicians you work with, do they ever come to you with that, their own feelings around being anxious or do they kind of take care of that themselves or do they view the conductor as, oh, I need to let them know, like, does that ever happen or no? Not in my experience in professional, but in uh, educational situations, absolutely. And I think I'm really like impressed with this next generation because like I had a, a Q&A session. I did an all state orchestra and we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and we took a break and we were like, let's just, you know, have a just have some conversations. And they just asked these amazing questions. And one kid, you know, just said he puts on a mask because he's afraid to show that he cares. You know, and I was like, wow, that's so awesome that you even are that self-aware as a high schooler. Another kid, you know, they were comparing their self, themselves to someone else and were like, man, and getting really down on themselves. <laughs> that's another reason why it's great to tell young conductors, like, you know, it's actually really good to go through those struggles because then you're going to be able to help someone else later on and just tell them that you've been there too and you came out okay. I think we all hide that stuff. And I think it can be just so powerful to just have a space where people do feel comfortable to bring those things up and just feel seen and feel not alone in it. Yeah. Just giving people the space to be able to speak their truth and how they feel. And in many ways, say things that once upon a time probably were internal and never shared with anyone. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And music's such a great space for that, right? You'd think that that musicians and classical musicians would be even more open than others because it's it's innately expressive, but actually it's very close and it's very like, I mean, there's tons of musicians on like um, medications because they've been burned by conductors who call them out and bully them. I mean, there's a lot of trauma and it, but I think that it's getting better every, every year. <laughs> and as you think about the future in this next generation, if they're already asking those questions, then the future is bright. One of the things that oftentimes comes up around the future is like, what is going to be the future of classical music? What is the future of the classical world, et cetera? On this show, we talk often about innovation and technology, things like AI, et cetera. When you view the world of orchestra and classical music in the classical world, how do you see the future looking? Does it look the same or does it look completely different? I'd be curious to get a sense from you on what you view the future of this space being and looking like. I mean, I hope it's some of the same, and I also hope it's a lot different too. Um, so I think classical music specifically has a lot to learn from uh, from other genres of music. And, you know, to me, like classical music has been very into itself and not, it doesn't really reach out to different audiences. And then they're like, why aren't people coming to us? And it's like, well, you're not, you need to go to them. Everyone in a community should have the opportunity to have access to an orchestra because of what it can bring to enrich your life. I think orchestras are just starting to try to, you know, perform at different venues, you know, perform music from different artistic voices. Um, it's been historically just a bunch of old, old white men and they're finally seeing, and I really don't think it's a trend. I really don't think it's a trend. I really think that orchestras are making, making a change. But the thing is also that classical musicians are only trained to play classical music. So what's happening is I think they're a little scared sometimes to play, you know, like there's a composer from Atlanta, Carlos Simon, and he you know, when he was a kid, they were only allowed to listen to like gospel and jazz in the house. His orchestra pieces are sus chords. It's all jazz. That can be a little bit uncomfortable for some musicians who aren't trained in that, but they base their whole identity on 
being like perfectionists and really good at, at their music. So um, I think it takes bravery to uh, for orchestras to try to um, know that they're not as experienced, but know that it still will be so valuable and will further engage audiences to not just play classical music, like blending genres. I think that's also where it's at. That's what I would love to do. Like the composer may, like kind of forces orchestras to collaborate with different artists by the music that they wrote. Like maybe it's like um, a blues singer and backup orchestra, but that's the way it's written. So you have to do that. Or it's like a marching band plus orchestra, or there's just so many possibilities. And I think the mindset in a lot of these orchestras is like, oh, but they have to be so artistic. And there's other things that are just equally important. And also we have to talk about opportunity. It's the evolution of new worlds, different worlds in many ways combining. If that happens, what do you think happens to the industry? Does it get better overall because of that merge? Oh, absolutely better. And I, I think what happens is that then colleges and conservatories will start requiring audition excerpts will be not just Beethoven and Bach, but it'll be like William Grant still, other composers. And sending the message that our, that this is our values. It has to happen at like each level at the same time. You know, if you start playing violin in fourth grade or sixth grade or something, most of that music is only living or dead white guys. And so composers right now aren't necessarily being motivated to write easy music, even though that music has a bunch of impact because so many kids play it. Orchestras are starting to try to do competitions and call for scores for music that isn't just you know, Western classical music so that composers of different backgrounds can really write with their own voice and their own background. And then, and that's actually encouraged and and being looked for. How do you see yourself in the role of a conductor in this new world? Like what role would you play in this shifting dynamic? I love to just find composers who I can really get behind and just champion them, um, or help, you know, help, um, spread their voice essentially, because composers are at the mercy of people choosing their music to program. So doing commissions is something I would love to do. Um, maybe doing a concerto composition competition or a call for scores where I really set forth, Hey, these are what we're, this is what we're looking for. And I try to fill in gaps of what I feel in, is lacking in the orchestral world or in the educational music. I love it. That's awesome. So I've got two questions that I want to wrap with. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. Um, I've enjoyed having this dialogue with you. Um, This is going to be a bit of a fill in the blank. So before I became a conductor, I wish I would have known that blank. I wish I would have known how hard it is, I guess. But at the same time, then I'm afraid I would have been scared off. So (laughs) I don't know. When you say how hard it is, what is the hardest part? Like, What is the most difficult element of this role? everything <laughs> every it's just you have to be like good interpersonally you have to inspire people you have to look ahead you have to be a great musician you have to you know there's just it's just involves every single part of you all right another question in order to be a great conductor i have learned that the single most important skill to develop is i would say curiosity when you talk about the research, that's definitely something that showed up. Like when you're saying like you're diving into these books of biographies and you're actually diving into the history behind these artists, like that curiosity, where did that come from? So I've had some mentors and they've shown me how much, in a nice way, they were like, 
this is the things I think about. And I'm like, whoa, I was at like level one and you're at like level 10. And so they opened up this door for like, this is all the stuff I've been missing. So now I go in and try to just ask yourself questions from all different angles about the music. It definitely is like a competitive part of me. It's like, I want to be more curious. I want to be more curious than the other person and, and know more, you know, but. <laughs> I love it. I like that. I like that. Thank you so much for being on the show, Tamara. It's been great to connect with you. If the audience wanted to learn more about you, come to a concert, where should they go? How do they learn more? They could just go to my website. It's just pretentiously my name, www.tamaradwards.com. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'll be sure to plug that in the show notes as well. Thank you again. I appreciate everything that you've been doing. Um, thank you for sharing your voice and giving uh, my audience some time. It's been great to chat with you today. Thank you so much, Ross. Thanks for having me. Cheers. If you want to know how to create like the grades, let's break it down.